Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Dualistic Unity. I am playing the part of Andrew today. I'm still playing the part of Ray. I haven't switched it to Carl as yet, because admittedly, after 42 years of pretending to be Ray, I'm a little attached to the guy. Fair enough. Maybe Season 3, we can toss in Carl and, and Jimmy or something. I'll be Jimmy. <laughs> That'd be great. Just mess up our, our audience. And then again, if they've made it to season three, they would be probably on board. Yep. That makes ter- perfect sense. We are now listening to Jimmy. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they'd be too surprised by that one bit. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a couple of weeks since, uh, since we touched base, we took a week off last week just to kind of take a break, contemplate a lot of the changes that we've been going through here on the show, because admittedly on the show, we started out this just being a conversation. That's all it was meant to be. And then as the show has progressed, we've discovered some insights within ourselves and we've discovered some some ambitions to go in different directions and kind of spread the conversation and encourage this discussion uh, in the world. But of course, with ambition, sometimes there's that note of seriousness. And so we started to get a little bit too caught up in, in the end result of what we were trying to do rather than just enjoying the ride. And so we took a week off and kind of just, you know, separated, did our own thing, went out, lived in the world, rem- reminded ourselves what this is really all about. Because as much as this conversation is fun, the conversation is ultimately supposed to better enable us to enjoy our lives from moment to moment, right? So that's where we've been. And so now we're back with episode three of season two. We're feeling refreshed. We've got some new ideas. I've been reading and, and researching all kinds of fun stuff like, um, Epiphenomenology. Epiphenomenology. I'm going to try that again, um, which is just mind blowing when you think about the implications and what it means about the intelligence that you and I are always talking about just lying under the surface of our egotistical mind. So we'll get a bit more into that today. Uh, I mean, these conversations are one of my favorite things to do. So I'm happy to be back, certainly. Um, So Ray and I were actually on a live on TikTok yesterday. And Something I wanted to touch on today because it just hit home so hard for me was this idea that Ray brought up that there are no opposites, essentially, is the the crux of it and that everything is on a spectrum. So whether it's hot and cold, you know, hot and cold are not opposites. They're just how we perceive temperature across a spectrum. So you know, from, I'm in the US, so I use Fahrenheit, you know, from zero degrees Fahrenheit to hundred degrees Fahrenheit, we would say that one end is cold, one end is hot, but it's all on the same continuous spectrum. Like they are connected in that way, sort of like how the universe is completely connected. And it all comes down to our conceptual perceptions of division. So if you equate it to something like temperature or even light and dark, you know, completely light, completely dark, you know, there's things in between dawn and dusk, you know, a little bit, a little bit darker out, a little bit lighter out. It's all a part of the same exact spectrum and how we make that divide is completely conceptual, you know, from, from cold to hot, you know, where, where does it stop? Typically, you know, in the U S it's like, it's, it's cold until it's, you know, 40 or 50 degrees. But even then it's like when you're going from summer to winter, 40 degrees seems incredibly cold. When you're coming from winter into the summer, 40 degrees growing up in Minnesota, we would all be in shorts out at recess when it hit 40, 45 degrees in the spring. So it's just very interesting. And it's so applicable to us experiencing this illusion of duality in the universe. 
that's all a spectrum too. That is all on the same fluid spectrum and any division is simply conceptual. Absolutely. It's funny. I, I, I've recently discovered the non-duality subreddit and I was in there, I was, I was talking about this and somebody was asking like, is it possible to experience an infinite ego? In other words, can I just know I'm everything? And my response was, well, as long as there's an I, you're not everything. There's a division immediately. There's a, perce there's a perception or, or a perception of division, but that division's not really there. It's like, well, what would you call it then? And well, it's just what is, right? But it's that spectrum again, right? Like we conceptually separate ourselves from what is, right? Despite the fact that we're part of what is, like there's no separation at all, but we tend to perceive it as what is perceiving itself and then what is being perceived by itself. And we just divide that between me and you or me and reality, but it's a spectrum. We're both, we're, we're both connected. There's no division. It's just that my experience requires me to identify as separate. Right. And same with like hot and cold. Like, how do we know it's cold? Well, we know it's cold because the most abundant um, natural resource on the planet turns solid. That's what we've defined. There's freezing point. That's it. Right. And then after that, it's like, well, what happens to liquid when it's higher? Oh, it turns to gas. But it's still the liquid. Like nothing's actually changed. It's still just a spectrum of change. Right. It's still the same thing in different forms. And that's that's life in a nutshell. But yeah, we always conceptually divide things because it's easier to do. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. And when, when you see a blue uh, or blue uh, card and a green card, you go, well, that's a blue card and that's a green card. And you're able to differentiate them or, or at least you're able to discern the difference and, and change your experience according to how you discern that difference. But difference isn't the same as division. And we tend to mis we, we tend to misinterpret that, right? We, we go, well, they look different. Therefore, they are different. It's like, mm, that's not the case. Right. And that's that's the whole thing. It's just seeing past what are ultimately useful tools. Yeah. Yeah. It's like comparing, you know, when I talk to some of my friends, trying to explain to them that like division is conceptual, like talking about difference versus divided, you know, my finger looks a lot different than my kneecap. They are different, but they are not divided. They're still all Andrew. So I was trying to go through this analogy with my friend and I was on a little bit of mushrooms and they were like drinking alcohol. And it was like this funny mix where we were pre-gaming and I had been tripping earlier in the day. And I was like, yeah, I'll come out, whatever, but I'm not going to drink. I'm probably just going to, you know, could use some water. And I was saying how, you know, we are the same thing. And just because you, you know, you feel something and I don't doesn't mean we are separate. It means we are different, but not separate. And I really like that because I've never really used different versus divided like that. And so I tried to explain it like, you know, say, for example, that you are my toe, you are Andrew's toe, and I am Andrew's finger. They're all Andrew, just like we are all the universe, but they're different. So if I stub my toe, does that mean that my finger is not me because it cannot feel that stubbed toe? No, it just can't feel it because they're different. They're in different locations, but they're not separate. They're still all Andrew. And my friend is like getting caught up and he's like, why do I have to be the toe? And I'm like, oh, dude, you're missing the forest and the trees here, man. I'm like, come on. Do you, you get that though? Right. And he's like, yeah, but like, we're still separate. Cause like I'm here and, and you're not. And I was like, 
yeah, like there is that, but using this analogy, you see like, just because you can feel something or you, you know, hear certain thoughts that you have identified with, it doesn't mean that they are your thoughts. You are just identifying with them. They're just sounds. Like if we both heard another third voice across the room and all of a sudden both of us started identifying with that voice being us, then it would feel like it was both of our voices. It's not that it's your voice. It's just a voice that you have identified with, if that makes sense. Like that's kind of the distinction I try and make with people when they say like, you know, well, why can I hear my thoughts and you can't hear my thoughts? And like, the thing isn't that it's your thoughts and not my thoughts. It's that you have identified with those noises that you hear. And it's not, there is nothing inherently yours about them. Yeah, exactly. We tend to get caught up in the idea that that because sound has to travel, that it implies there's a division between the two of us. It's kind of like light, right? Like light travels, but it doesn't travel through nothing, right? Like it actually has to travel through something for it to go, right? And, and so the same is true with sound. So we look at sound waves hitting our eardrum and we're like, ah, it's, it's crossed that space to, to reach me, but it crossed the space, the space through a medium that always exists and is always connecting us, right? So there's no division, right? Otherwise you wouldn't be able to experience those things. You wouldn't have connection to anything like sound or light or any other kind of experience unless it was through the medium of reality. So everything's connected Intri intricately. It's the, it's the perception that catches us, right? And the perception of space is probably one of the hardest ones to get over. It's like, well, you're over there. It's like, right, and there's air between us. That doesn't, that's not disconnected from us. There's air in my body, right? Like we're all just one and the same, just with slightly different, you know, characteristics and, and, and uh, perceptual differences. That's pretty much it, right? It's just, it's so interesting to watch how we get caught up in the divisions simply because we define ourselves with them. That's it. We wouldn't care ultimately, like, how we are divided wouldn't make a difference if it wasn't a measure of our own value, right? And this is where racism tends to get uh, to come in. And it's funny, I ran across a, a TikTok creator the other day and I was really impressed with the point that he was making, which was that racism is, is ultimately inaccurate because there's only one, right? Race means species. That's what it means, Right? So we can talk about different cultures, we can talk about different colors, we can talk about different expressions of our race, but ultimately it's one race, right? We just tend to divide it according to the perceptual differences based on how we identify, right? Which is what we were talking about before, about how like earlier Europeans didn't identify as just white people. They identified as like Italian people or Polish people or French people, right? And then that became a more generalized, you know, white culture as, as time moved on, because we tend to do that. We tend to take our, our divisions and then just kind of generalize them to make our group bigger and make ourselves feel more acceptable. It's just like religion, right? Yeah, it's interesting to the distinction that you made before about the perception of division because of my experience, like quote unquote, my experience. But if you're able to see things as just experience and you are, you know, existing within experience, all of a sudden there isn't anything personal to you. And that kind of ties into a lot of what we talked about on the manifestation workshop was the idea that, you know, there isn't this personal thing to go about. Like you have the opportunity to influence 
experience in general, not your experience necessarily, but experience in general here and now. And through more clearly seeing that we are just a part of this experience, we are a part of the whole, you know, we are the whole as a part, you know, it, it's more, you're more clearly able to see that manifestation is something that happens right now all the time. It's not something that you get to in the future as this me with my experience. Like you are having an impact on experience here and now when you're able to take yourself sort of out of the picture, this fiction of you, all of a sudden you're just experiencing right now all the time and you can kind of do what you want in it. And without those perceptions of my experience, there isn't as much past and future because they're everything that you think about in the future or regret from the past or remember from the past comes back to your idea of you, you know, your perception of me. So when, when you take out, when you reframe that uh, sentence or statement of my experience to just being experience itself here and now, there isn't as much personal aspect, as much of a personal aspect to that. And you're just experiencing what is right now all the time. That makes a lot more sense, right? Because it doesn't make any sense to say that you are having an experience because your experience changes everybody else's experience. So we are having an experience as a single I. It's just that we tend to compartmentalize it, compartmentalize it and claim ownership, right? I've often said like we're, we're leaves on the river, right? And every once in a while the leaves bump into each other. You're like, oh, my bad. You didn't do it. Right? <laughs> You're just part of the river. Like that's just the way the flow is going. But we identify with our particular part and we separate from everything else. But it's just experience, right? I am experiencing. And that's that's the universe. If the universe was to have a voice, that would be what it would say, right? And that's it. But of course, the universe wouldn't say that because the universe wouldn't use the word I, which I've often said to people, especially in the non-duality subreddit lately, because there is this, this addiction to ownership and control. And so surrendering the I, the idea of ourself, is kind of threatening, but we don't realize that it's actually how we can get to the experience that most of us want to have, how we can feel inspired and enthusiastic and insightful and creative and free and all of this other fun stuff. Because when we're not thinking about ourselves, when we're not distorting the signal, as you said, claiming ownership, making it about the past and the future and our assumptions and everything else, all of our attention is in the moment where we are. So no matter what it is we're doing, it's getting the benefit of all of our attention and all of our potential. And that's when we're able to do things um, with greater dexterity, with greater ease, right? We were talking about uh, a murmuration right? Where, where you got all these tiny birds that are doing these snap turns simultaneously. And I was saying that you know, it's amazing if you think about how little they have to be thinking about themselves individually in order to just feel that and let it happen, right? Whereas, you know, we tend to go, but I don't want to go that way. I want to go that way. And you want to go that way. Oh, so now you're in control. And so we have arguments with each other, despite the fact that there is no disconnection, right? So this is why I found it really interesting, the, the entire concept of epiphenomenology and I said that correctly this time because it kind of goes back to what they were studying in power versus force in terms of kinesiology so your body regardless of your your egotistical beliefs or your preferences knows whether something is destructive or constructive 
that was the entire point of the of the research that that they were doing in power versus force that was the entire focus of hawkins life was that if i ask your body a question and allow your muscles to answer it by either going weak or staying strong your body will have an answer that that is the same across everybody else all of our bodies know this and so hawkins for like a decade or more through tens of thousands of people found a way to repeat this process. And that's how he created his scale of consciousness was by asking the body, okay, so anger is higher than love. And the body go, no, by going weak and be like, okay, fine. So then they ask more questions and try and figure out where's anger in this scale. And that's how that whole, that whole thing happened. But that implies that there is knowledge or at least a level of intuition or intelligence beneath our thoughts that pre precurses our thoughts that comes first. And what I enjoyed about the epiphenomenology study that I was looking at was that what they did was they, they put a button in front of this person and they connected their brain to this sensor. And the sensor was designed to, to measure when their brain or when the signal in their brain decided to push the button, when it was going to push the button. And they knew this by watching what the brain did the last time the person pushed the button. But the experiment was this sit there and try to fool it into thinking you're going to push the button convince yourself you're going to push the button think about pushing the button do whatever you can to make that buzzer go off and it did not matter what that person thought until they were going to go and push the button right and then the machine knew before their thought engaged to give them a reason to push the button so there's an impulse that we are acting on there's an intelligence that's acting through us before our thought and our ego distorts the signal it's exactly what Hawkins was talking about. And it's exactly what they, what they were proving in that mold or that slime mold I was talking about where um, basically, so the slime mold is made up of individual cells, all of which are acting completely selfishly. They are doing their best to survive on their own. But when these cells come together and they're all the same, they all work exactly the same when they're on their own. When they come together, they all start taking on different roles within the organism that they are combining to make. Some of them start becoming um, uh, an immune system. Some of them start taking pathogens out and, and literally removing themselves from the host in order to take the poisons with them. Okay, so they're, they're altruistic for the point of the whole. Right, but they're all single cell. They're all working on their own. They just happen to create this this intelligent life form. They they even create internal organs as a result of this. So it's intelligence in full swing. So they created a map uh, of Japan, and they put uh, where all the cities in Japan are. They put little little bits of oatmeal, and the oatmeal was uh, basically in conjunction or or compared to the population centers of all those cities. So where there was more population, there was more oatmeal. And then they put this, this mold on this map in this container of this map of Japan. Well, the mold immediately started connecting all the oatmeal and distributing the nutrients to the rest of the mold. And so it did so by building little tube systems from one package of, pocket of oatmeal to the other. Mycelium also acts like this. So what was interesting is by the time the mold had completely finished covering the map of Japan, had absorbed all of the nutrients, it created a tube system that was almost identical to the subway system in Japan, right? Except that it was, it was better than what the engineers had created. And it's because our intelligence knows what to do when we just let it tackle the problem, when we let it function as a part of the whole, as a part of what is, it reflects the intelligence of what is, which is limitless. 
I just thought that was fascinating because that's exactly the point. Our intelligence has nothing to do with our brain. Our intelligence is, is from beneath the cellular level. We are literally the intelligence of, of what people will call it energy. I'm never a big fan of, of referring to, to reality as energy because that's just another description, right? But we are the intelligence of an infinite and eternal existence. It's whole and complete in itself. So there isn't a problem that it can tackle where it doesn't immediately become the solution unless it gets in its own way, which is what our ego does. So how do we apply that to our world? How do we apply that to say government? Yeah, certainly. That's so fascinating hearing stories like that about just how well that intelligence can work and how well it can work when we get ourselves out of the way. And I've been thinking more about I know, um, I think on the last episode, and I know I've spoke with you about that sort of spectrum of flow versus fear that I've been trying to figure out a way to express it in a video and, and incorporate it in some way of just understanding that it's not about, or it's at least, you know, from my point of view, not necessarily about self-love or figuring out how to have a positive perception of yourself, because that is just another reinforcement of that identity, which ends up inevitably sort of being that root of your suffering. So it's, it's more so transcending that idea of yourself and the idea of flow versus fear, flow on the one end being zero identity and fear on the other end being, you know, full, very solid identity. And you fear because you think you have this identity and you think you have something to lose when it's just a fiction the entire time. But when you're in the state of flow, like that sort of state of where intelligence is just acting through you, acting as you without your idea of you coming along with it, you will be able to accomplish and achieve so much more. So, so thinking about, you know, having a happy and fulfilling life, it's not necessarily that you need to have self-love or this super positive perception of yourself and all these things that you have to remember how to be happy. It's more so getting yourself out of the way and almost forgetting that you have an identity because then all of a sudden you are one with experience. There is no my experience or, you know, my life. It's just, you see yourself as life or you see yourself as experience, experiencing everything here and now. And so you're able to utilize all of this, you know, potential energy and possibilities that this, you know, human has to offer without the, you know, perception or idea of yourself coming along with it to kind of slow it down and create almost like a friction with this flow, because it's almost like, you know, if you're thinking about leaves flowing on a river, it's like when you get yourself involved or say it's like, you know, rocks rolling down a hill and there's like a wall on the side and you bring yourself into it. And it's like that rock just starts scraping up against the side. And it's like, you know, hitting all this friction because you have this idea of you that you're trying to get in and like control things for me. And like, I want this, or I want that. And it's like, you know, it's almost like the universe kind of knows. And I don't, I don't love getting like too woo woo into like, you know, the universe knows what's best for you because you are that deep down. So it's almost like the universe wanting what's best for you is just another sort of like belief system, but it's just about 
you know, getting yourself out of the way and just allowing things to happen and understanding that you are a part of that current and not separate from it. And, you know, the more you're able to get yourself out of the way, the more you're able to flow with things as they are here and now, you know, the easier things will be. And, you know, the more peace and likely joy and happiness and all that good stuff you'll, you'll find, but it starts with, you know, almost forgetting that idea of yourself, or at least questioning it and getting it out of the way to a degree. So true. And it makes sense if you think about like when, when we're trying to learn something, we have to empty our cup. And, and what that means is just, we have to accept we don't know. Because as long as we're telling ourselves we know, as long as we need to know, as long as our value is based on us knowing, right? We're, ne we're never going to have the same clarity or enthusiasm for learning that new thing because it's always going to have to go through that filter of our insecurity, right? And so just admitting, I don't know. All of a sudden our brain just goes, oh, let me work on that. But until we get out of the way and say, yeah, I don't know, our brain's just like, I know. Trust me, I know. What do you mean I don't know? And it just defends itself rather than learning anything new. It just defends what it already thinks it is, right? Whereas it's like we accept, I don't know everything. Wow, here comes an insight. And that's, the, you know, what's funny in coaching, I'll often do this because I've had clients say like, you're not going to explain that more to me. I'll just drop an insight on them. And I was just like, all right, I just want you to think about this for your next session, right? This is your homework. That's, that typically, that's what I'll do is I'll give homework in terms of here's an insight, dwell on that, right? Journal it, whatever you got to do. And they'll be like, well, aren't you going to explain that a little bit more? I'm like, no, I don't have to. Because I know as soon as you just allow yourself to let it, let it sit and do its thing, you're going to have an insight. As soon as you get yourself out of the way and stop thinking you need to learn or memorize something, your brain's just going to go, oh, that's interesting. Click. And it hits. It hits almost every time, which is why Life coaching is so much easier for me now than it used to be when I first started, because when I first started, I was under the impression that I had to have all the answers. I was the one who had to know what to say, but it, it's intelligence at play. All I'm ever doing is nudging people out of their obstacle. All I'm ever doing is kind of reminding them like, you know, if you get out of the way a bit, this shit will all work itself out. And then I just let that happen now. And every time, the client comes back, I had an insight, right? But before when I'd be like, here's something I want you to try and practice, never worked. It always ended up just being another facet of their ego. Oh, now I'm practicing this. I'm doing better because I do this now. My, this person doesn't do this. It's like, mm, that's not the case. You know, it's not about one thing or the other. It's about the awareness of what you're doing, not what you're doing, right? And so it's always just nudging people towards, again, that, that state of presence which is always questioning their assumptions. As soon as they don't know what's happening, it's like their brain's just overly enthusiastic to try and figure it out, right? But as long as it's afraid to be wrong, it doesn't want to even try to figure it out. It just, it just settles for that cheap high of feeling right, as opposed to actually feeling clear. Yeah, it's like giving that, you know, when, when you used to give them something to do specific, like something to practice, it was almost like giving their ego something to, to chew on and strengthen itself through versus just giving them something open-ended and allowing them to like, kind of figure it out for themselves and, and like a blank slate with, 
you know, a template to a degree as opposed to like fully filled out. It's like giving them something to do and work on as opposed to their ego. And then through that, you know, their ego isn't getting strengthened in the process in that way. And, and I think, you know, coming back to even just questioning everything that they think that they are, I, I mean, that's kind of it at the end of the day. And then when you get to the end of that road, if they're necessarily even is an end, I don't think it's necessarily like a hard and fast end, but there gets to a point where you've questioned yourself almost into oblivion and then the idea of yourself into oblivion. And all of a sudden, you know, what is left is a lot of what we talk about, like right now, that's, that's it. And that's what so many people in the past have, have gotten to. They just question everything they think they knew and they think they are, and they think they know about themselves until they get to a point that there really isn't much left. And that is where, you know, that sort of euphoric aha understanding is like, holy shit, I'm, I'm not any of these things that I thought I was. I'm not my past. I'm not this idea of myself. I'm not any of my past experiences. And something along those lines have been another sort of video idea I've been toying with is doing a situation. I thought of like this aspect of it today, where it's like a two, two person, like I'm playing two different sort of roles and it's like a job interview. And a typical question you get in a job interview is, tell me about yourself or statement you get in a job interview. Tell me about yourself. Um, tell me about who you are. And I'm going to say that, but then right as the other person who's getting interviewed starts talking, they're like, ah, but the one, the one thing is you can't use your past. And they'll be like, Oh, Oh shit. Uh, I'm in this office talking to you right now. It's like, there you go. See, you're not your past. And all of that happened right now and figure out some sort of way to express this idea that, you know, you aren't your past. So whenever someone asks, like, tell me about yourself or tell me, you know, the story of Andrew, it's just like, I just go back to all of these things that happened in my past, all these things I accomplished in the past, all these things that I've experienced in the past. But as soon as it sort of clicks that you are not your past and the past doesn't exist. And what if you just were existing here and now without a past and you weren't bringing along all this baggage of, you know, quote unquote, your past, then all that's left is your awareness of what is the awareness that you are aware here and now, like that's kind of it. There isn't really anything left to describe. Like you can describe this body, but like, I don't know, that doesn't, I can, I can see that. So it's, it's, interesting. And, and I want to figure out a way to express that. Cause I think that was sort of the insight that changed a lot for me was just understanding that I'm not my past. And if I'm not my past and maybe I'm not Andrew, cause all that Andrew is, is a bundle of past ideas and experiences, but I am not any of that. I'm just aware right now. And that's about it. So, so that idea of you doesn't come along with you. So just trying to describe yourself without being able to use the past, it, it kind of like puts your, you know, mind in a little bit of a pretzel to the point that you're like, oh shit, maybe I'm not all that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's going to point out some serious flaws in, in, in how we govern our system, because what you're saying is that in the present moment, you have potential, you can do anything. If you allow yourself and, and, and separate yourself from your self-imposed limitations, the fact is you can perform, you can perform in ways you never expected. You can surprise people as a result. But when we go into a job interview, they don't want to know who we are. 
They want to know who we've been, right? They want that certainty. Oh, you have a track record of this kind of performance, right? Which it makes sense to some degree, but on the other hand, you're also cutting off a lot of people's potential. You're cutting off a lot of possibilities. I mean, how many people have ended up going to jail for a stupid reason, like, you know, possessing pot, for example, they get out of jail, they have a criminal record. Now somebody looks at their history and, and assumes they know their potential because of what came before. Right. And, and so that's the issue with our, our, our economy, or at least the hiring process is like what happened in the past is somewhat useful. What's happening in front of you is, is just as equally, if not more so useful. Like when I was hiring people, I would only give about 10% of, of my um, consideration to their resume. It's like, okay, you've had this job, you've had this job, because resumes are always cherry-picked, right? I've written enough resumes to know how to make it sound awesome, right? And, and, and the problem is, is that it's always a superficial image, and that's often what happens in a resume, is you'll see, oh, this person worked for Goldman Sachs, or this person worked, worked for such and such a bank. Oh, they must be good employees. That doesn't mean anything. And so normally that's how people hire because they think of themselves the same way. I'm the accumulation of my past experiences. I am my resume, right? Whereas when somebody would come in for a job and I was hiring, I would sit and shoot the breeze with them for about 20 minutes. And it wasn't about work, like maybe five, 10 minutes about the job. And then another 10 minutes, just shooting the breeze. Like, what are you up to today after work? This has been a fun interview just to talk to them because that's when the guard comes down. That's when all of a sudden they, they allow you to see who they really are when they're not putting on that show, right? But to do that, you have to stop putting on the show yourself, right? You have to go, okay, like, let's take off our, our pretend hats now. I'm not the interviewer and you're not the interviewee. We're just, you know, being human, as it were. And it's in that conversation that you see who they are now. Um, this is something I said about life coaching. And, and my father-in-law found this really funny one day where I was just like, you know, I don't give a damn about people's stories. <laughs> and he's like, how do you life coach them then? I'm like, they're not their stories, right? They are who they are when, when they're in front of me. They're not their stories, right? It's, it's the idea that they are their stories that's making them come to me, right? To, to help them free themselves from that. And so when I'm talking to somebody, I'm talking to them now. I'm not talking to what they've been through. I'm not talking to you know, who they think they are, though I'm sure they're bringing some of that with them. Right. But if I buy into that, then I'm not talking to them anymore. Now I'm talking to my idea of them. And that's where my suffering and conflict comes in. That's where my lack of alignment comes in, right? Where all of a sudden now I'm not even in reality. I'm in this fiction in my head that's making me feel better about the next state, the next movement that I'm about to do on a very logical sequence, just so I can feel like I have control. And that's what, that's what throws off the murmuration, right? That's what makes the, the, star, the starlings go in different directions is because they're all thinking, oh, this is the best thing to do. And it's, that's, that's not flow, right? So it's the same with relationships. Get out of your own way. All of a sudden you find a whole new way of communicating with that person. Yeah, it's, it almost sounds so simple and basic. Like you are not your story. Like if I were to say that, someone would be like, well, yeah, obviously. But then if you actually think about how often people take their story into every single thing they do, and it's funny you bring up interviews because I give a, give a decent amount of interviews for my company also. And I've never really thought about it like that. But I like, quite frankly, a lot of times I will do just like the phone screen, which is the initial step to our interview process. It's not like doesn't have to do necessarily with, you know, the 
specifics about, you know, questions we have to ask or, or about experience. And so like I'll skim their resume, but like barely pay it any attention. I'll see like, you know, we need this person because we need someone who has experience in X platform or whatever. So like, I'll check that. But then after that, like, I kind of just have a casual conversation with them and see if they can, you know, hold a conversation and, you know, seem interested in this role. And it's very much, I stay away. I've always kind of stayed away from the resume. And even when I do, because sometimes I'll be a part of the later interview process as well. And like, I'll have specific questions that I have to ask, but even then I don't give the resume very much weight because it's the same thing. It's just like, you know, this highlight reel that you can kind of like say whatever you want on. Like, obviously it's illegal to lie on a resume, but like, you know, you can embellish pretty well on there. And, and so it's, it's, it's just like that idea of it, you know, they are not their story. They are right now. They are what is in front of me or on the phone or whatever. And, and understanding from a personal perspective that, you know, you are not your story. It's like the most freeing thing ever, because that's what we constantly tell ourselves. And, and we, sort of subconsciously try and solidify and prove that story correct, even when it's negative. It's like, we'd rather feel comfortable in negativity or certain about, you know, the negative aspect of the story that we tell ourselves than being uncertain about that story as a whole. Like we would rather be certain. That's so crazy that, that that's how it goes a lot of times, but it's so true. And, and, the reality is I was talking to someone else recently just about how um, I don't really know, you know, what all my life will look like at the end of this year. And I have friends who have like a 20 year plan. They have like their next five jobs laid out. They want to go to business school, get this job, become a VP, blah, 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 blah. It's like, shit, man, I don't even know what I want to be doing in three months. Like I, I have no idea. But the funny part of that is that neither do they but they just have this idea that they do and they cling to that as a feeling of security and certainty that they know what's going to happen. They don't know. They don't even know if they're going to be alive at the end of this year, you know, but it's like everyone clings to that idea. So when you're able to relax into uncertainty and understand that that is the reality of every single moment, even the end of today is completely uncertain. You know, how I'm going to spend four hours after this podcast episode is completely uncertain, but we like to settle on this idea that we are certain. And it's like, we're not so sure you can settle on it. There's nothing wrong with settling on it, but it's not reality. And it's not the reality of reality. Like that is uncertainty, like hard and fast. That is, that is what it is all the time. Yeah. You, you can, you can settle on it. Like you can go, yeah, I feel certain and, and commit to that, but don't complain when life comes around and kicks you in the butt. Like when, when all of a sudden there's a conflict with your assumption, that's on you. Right. And, but it's, it's, it's that balance again, like look at somebody's past record, look at where they've been. Sure. But don't assume the past dictates the future, right? They may have some influence, but people are, are adaptable. People can change, right? But that's again, it's like, I want to get this idea of that person. It's the idea that I've already decided is going to be what's best for me and the company. And I can't tell you how often I've been in situations where an employer has ignored my advice when, to, when hiring somebody. Hire them based on the resume alone. 
found out that person had huge mental health problems or had huge relationship problems and they were bringing it all to work, right? And it's like, because you're looking for certain things. We do the same thing in relationships. We do the same thing going to the bar, trying to meet somebody, right? We're, we're looking for a certain type of hair. We're looking for a certain type of outfit. We're looking for a certain type of, of, of demeanor, right? We don't know. All we're looking at is the packaging. That's all we're looking at, right? And so we end up in a situation where we convince ourselves, that's, that's my type right there. And then two years later, as we're with that person and we're not getting along, we wonder why. It's like, because you made all kinds of assumptions just so you could feel certain about your future. And that was it. Like when my grandfather, uh, when, when, before I was born, he ran a uh, shoe repair shop. He was a shoemaker in old Quebec. And when he wanted to hire an assistant, he'd put an, uh, an ad out in the paper and it would be, you know, experienced welcome, not necessary kind of thing. But what he would do is instead of reading the resumes, he would just say, come in on this day for, for your interview. And before anybody would show up, he'd take a broom and he'd throw it on the ground in front of the, in front of the door, right? So it was just lying across the doorway. And as people walked into, into the shoe repair shop and they stepped over it, he just said, no, thank you. First person who walked in, picked up the broom, he hucked it, right? Because that's who you are. I didn't ask you to do that, right? And, and that's how he determined who was going to work, work best with him. And it worked for years. He always ended up having good employees as a result of that. And it's because he was judging them based on who they were showing him they were rather than who they were pretending to be, right? And it's the same is true all the time. Like if you're going to meet somebody, if you're going to, if you're going to entertain the idea of a relationship with somebody, especially allow them to show you who they are. Don't, don't put your image of who you want them to be on them. You will always end up back in frustration. Yeah, it's interesting with your uh, grandfather with the, the broom situation, it kind of shows how, you know, present and aware they are. Also, I'm sure a lot of them, you know, may have picked up the broom if they weren't going in for an interview necessarily, but they were so focused on the interview and like doing well in the interview, they completely, you know, it's kind of like putting those blinders on and all of a sudden, like nothing else in reality is relevant whatsoever. So it's not even maybe that they wouldn't have done that if they had just been walking into the store, but it's kind of like killing two birds with one stone as, as you can see that they're considerate and they are presently aware here and now. And, and so they'll notice, even though they're coming in for an interview, they notice that there's a broom on the ground and, and they're considerate enough to pick it up. And then um, talking about, you know, people's assumptions and not getting worked up when, you know, your assumptions aren't, you know, validated or don't come true or whatever. I think that ties in well with the idea of suffering and just the whole idea of suffering being basically thinking things should be different than they are. Like thinking reality that you know how reality should be. And when it isn't that way, you suffer in whatever form that takes, you know, if, you know, you break your leg or something. Yeah. It's painful. Yeah. It will probably run you some medical bills or, or whatever, but does complaining about that or, you know, wallowing in that, is that going to change any of that? No, it, it isn't like you can't change that. So thinking, so it's almost like realizing that everything is as it is, and it, it couldn't be otherwise. Like what is right now is what is. It is completely impossible to be different 
than it is right now. So thinking that it could be and thinking that it should be are completely futile and they were only layer on additional unnecessary suffering. That suffering is not necessary. You break your leg, you don't have to suffer. Like you can experience the pain, you can deal with it as you are, you can get surgery, kind of roll with it, but suffering and wallowing and complaining about it is not a necessary aspect of that situation. It just isn't. Even labeling it as bad isn't a necessary. It's I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's super common, but it isn't a necessary aspect of that situation. And realizing, you know, when it comes to good and bad, that you can't see the bigger picture. So you're, you're putting so much weight and judgment on this sliver of an experience of your entire life where this could lead you to a situation that's, you know, the best case scenario for the rest of your life. Maybe, you know, you break your arm and so you can't be as active. So, you know, you've always wanted to be a singer and you've never taken the time to do it. And all of a sudden, you know, you take singing lessons, you find out you have a really good voice, you create an album and it, you know, you sell a million copies all of a sudden, you know, you would have never experienced that if it wasn't for breaking your arm. Obviously that's an extreme example, but it can be applicable to kind of any situation is like, you don't know what this situation right in front of you is going to lead to. So you don't know if it's good or bad and judging it and saying that, you know, a situation like that is bad, is unnecessary, only going to add additional suffering and only going to drain your energy from experiencing, you know, right now, because the reason you think it's bad is because of your idea of you that's coming along with the situation. Like it's something that happened to, you know, this human, but now you're layering on all of this identity and it's just, it's just not necessary. It's a waste of time. Like it's not, you know, the easiest thing ever. I'm not saying that, but I think it is worth just being aware of and practicing as you can. And the more you practice it, the easier it'll get. And all of a sudden, you know, you'll see yourself just not experiencing as much as much suffering because that's all that it's going to give you when you're in situations like that and you feel the need to judge every single thing that happens. So true. So true. But it's, uh, it's kind of like weaning yourself off an addiction, right? Like, we we reach for the idea of ourselves in order to feel less afraid. <laughs> that, that's really all it is, and 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 to feel more valuable, and that's what we've been taught to do. And, and so when you stop doing that, you end up in this uncertainty, and then you have an opinion about that uncertainty, and that opinion lowers your perceived value. And it's because opinions themselves reinforce identity, right? The more you delve you delve into your opinions the more you're reinforcing your idea of who you are and what you like and what's acceptable and what's not. And you're just repainting the prison walls over and over and over again. This is something I was saying about uh, self-validation because somebody wrote, they're like, well, what's wrong with self-validation? It's like nothing except that it reinforces the prison. It reinforces the reason you feel you need to self-validate the idea of yourself. Your value cannot be measured. It cannot be lowered. It cannot be raised. You are what is. Right. So you don't have to try and measure that value, but we don't understand how to just have faith in ourselves because we've always been taught to reach for that addictive control. Yeah, it is fascinating just how much that idea of you ties into every negative experience, you know, even just perceiving it as negative is like just another, you know, perception. But anything that, you know, you don't necessarily enjoy feeling is 
you know, validated and sort of strengthened by all these ways that we reinforce this identity, you know, whether it's seemingly positive or negative, any sort of validation is, as you say, repainting the, the prison walls of that and understanding that you don't need that identity. It's, it can be tough, I think, in this society, because, you know, we are so hyper focused on identity. And, you know, even things like, like self love, and a lot of people comment on my videos, like, how do I, you know, love myself more? And it's like, I, I've never really had a great answer to that, because I've never really understood it. It's not something that I ever necessarily struggled with personally. So, I never really knew strategies to do it, but I'm seeing more clearly now that it's not, you know, the strategy to figure out how to love yourself. It's to realize that yourself is an illusion and, and that you don't need it for this experience. So it's almost like transcending that need for self-love because without the self, you don't need to love anything and this fiction of you because, you know, as soon as you start loving it, you're giving opportunities to, you know, hate it at the same time. It's like that two sides of the same coin or that spectrum that we talk about. And it's, it's just that perception of, of how you are in the moment perceiving this fictitious self. And in one moment you may, you know, love that self. And then all of a sudden something comes up and, and you hate that self and it's, it's the same self. So it's, the issue isn't, you know, that you're hating that self is that there's any self that you're holding on to, to begin with. And it, it comes back to that identity, like every single time. Yeah. I mean, even, even if you have a positive self image, right, you are still addicted to it. You're still by holding on to something you're going to have to defend. You're going to have to maintain. You're going to have to build. More importantly, you're holding on to something that only exists by comparison to your assumptions, that's the problem with identity, right? It's never, it's never what is. It's always based on assumptions. It's always based on the, uh, on the method of comparison. And that goes back to what we were talking about, about self-love. This is one of the reasons that I don't use the word love in a lot of my videos. This is why you'll never hear me say, you know, God is love. Reality is love. Enlightenment is love. You'll never hear me use that word because there are so many concepts around love in the same way as gratitude. Right. Like we talk, we've talked about gratitude not being an action, but something that happens when you have clarity in, in regards to context. All of a sudden you feel gratitude. You're like, well, this could be different than it is. Everything's perfect. That's a very different thing than going, I am specifically grateful for this and cherry picking. Right. And the same is true with love. Like we have this idea of love, like God is love. True. God's also hate. If you're going to look at it that way, like you're looking at, Two, two spectrums. This is that whole Christian thing. It's like, oh, God does all the good things. The devil does all the bad things. It's like, there's no division at all. So the concept of love is different than the reality of love. And so when do we experience love? And when do we experience the reality of love? Not just fixation, not just, you know, infatuation, not just um, possession or, or desire, but the actual experience of love to me may, is a lot like the experience of empathy or self-acceptance. It's the same thing but it's not the word. The word is pointing at the reality and the reality is the experience that, that you have when you're not thinking about yourself and painting walls of division. So on the one hand, yeah, God is love, 
but not the love that we think of in terms of ego. It's not the action love. It's what remains when we're no longer distorting and causing divisions, right? And this is why I avoid the word love, I, because there's so many misconceptions about it. It becomes about ownership. It becomes about preference. It becomes about all of these other things. It, and more importantly, it becomes about whether or not you are meeting my perceived needs which also isn't love. Um, There's a great quote by Krishnamurti. I posted this uh, uh, on our Discord, I think yesterday. Um, there, is no there is no love in comparison. That's absolutely true, right? Because as long as you're comparing, how can you love that person? You're just seeing an assumption. You're not even aware of them. Yeah, it is, it's wild how the idea of yourself all comes back to comparison and i think you talk about that in discover transcendence how that fictitious idea of you is all based on comparison any any trait you use to describe yourself is all relative to you know like that normal bell curve of humanity like even to say that you are tall or short or heavy or skinny or any of those things is all relative there's no objective you know heavy versus light feel like muscular versus skinny. It's all relative to that bell curve of normality in that way. And it's all relative to other people. And you mentioned love. And, and when it comes to that, I get a lot of, I see a lot of people commenting things like, especially when it comes to, you know, psychedelic experiences is, you know, they're like, you know, all that I saw is that everything is love. And so I think you know, a lot of people see that in the way that you are sort of describing it and that that's all that's left. But I think a lot of people tie it to that idea of like, God is love, devil is hate sort of thing and not see and not seeing it as what is left when there is no more distortion, like what is left when you see yourself in everyone and everything, whether it's, you know, the Buddha or Hitler, whether it's Jesus or Stalin, like that is what is left when you see that you are the whole, you are all of it, you are the entire spectrum. But a lot of people get very fixated on the idea of love as just being that one end of the spectrum. And it's like, love to hate that spectrum. It's like, they're, they only want like that upper third of the spectrum that's closer to love. And that's all, that's all there is in the universe and all that's true. And I think that, you know, a lot of the spiritual community gets tied up in that idea and you know the ascension to 5d reality and all that shit you know it's like getting caught up and thinking that you know you know good vibes only like there is no hate necessary like there will be no hate left in you know the fifth dimensional earth and and all of that stuff and it's like well it's all you know you can't have good without bad you can't have happiness without sadness it's all two sides of the same coin and i'm sure you know there's people in that uh, non-duality reddit thread who get caught up in those sorts of ideas as well and it's like that is kind of the core of non-duality is that there is no division between those two entities that you're prescribing as one being you know good and and necessary and a part of this new earth and one being like unnecessary and moving on it's like it's it's all you <laughs> it's all here now it's all, you're capable 
of all of it. And to think that you're not will build up this resistance within yourself that will lead to a lot of internal suffering typically is how I see it play out in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, non-duality becomes another concept. It becomes another structure. Um, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day because I, I posted a video that I, I made on TikTok saying something along the lines of, you know, in order to reveal, it, it was something along the lines of, you know, um, faith and humility is what happens when we dissolve our ego. That's the required faith and humility to reveal the reality of God that we've always been. Well, because I used us and the concept of God in that sentence, somebody in the non-duality forum just took issue with it. It's like, you're using the word God. You're not an appropriate addition to this community. God is not part of non-duality. It's like, whoa. So, so I wrote back to him, like, you know, if you're thinking of non-duality as being like a belief structure, like religion or, or something along those lines, I'm like, you're in for a fun ride <laughs> because it is not, it's nothing like that. Non-duality has nothing to do with conceptual anything so much as just the understanding that duality is not real, that it's not what it appears to be. That's it. There's no concept. Like, and a lot of people are like, oh, have you experienced non-duality? What the hell are you talking about? Right. Or, or have you experienced a ego death? What are you talking about? Like, let's, let's just get back down to this. And it's like, oh, well, you know, I've been to the pinnacle. It's like, there is no pinnacle. There's none of that. This is all just, again, conceptual masturbation. Like it's just making you feel good. And it's not actually doing anything useful. That, that's all it is. But it's because we don't know how to detach from our need to categorize, from our need to conceptualize what we experience. But as soon as we do, it's no longer the experience. That's the point. That's the whole problem that that non-duality subreddit is really having problems with. I mean, Oh my God, you can go on there and have a great time. Like I, I go on there and I just kind of have fun, you know, answer some questions, things like that. But occasionally you'll get somebody, the intellect, the intellect will just come out and they'll just nitpick at every word that you use and I'll nitpick at every expression. And, and it's like, what do you think of this? And what do you think of this? And, what this? and my only response was, this is not just an intellectual exercise, right? This isn't just about how clever we are with our words. So I said, you know, take from it what you can, or don't, <laughs> it's fine. But I'm not gonna sit here arguing because what would I be arguing about? My rightness, right? Like, it just doesn't make any sense, but it, it can't stick on that level of the, of the intellect. It has to go beyond that. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about power versus force Hawkins work again, was that he talks about how there's a dramatic shift after we stop thinking about ourselves to the same degree, literally after we abandon pride we end up in a state of courage, which is what he says is, is a pivotal point. That's when our consciousness really starts to change is that we can move forward without necessarily running from the stick or chasing the carrot, which makes a lot of sense. All of a sudden we, we experience acceptance and some degree of freedom. And in that we get a greater capacity to succeed in all of our endeavors, which is where you, you go from there, leading all the way up to reason, which is like the 400 to 500 level of the scale of consciousness. Well, at the reason level of reason, your brain's just processing all the time, but they, they mentioned that it's non-sequential processing. And this is something that I learned, I started realizing a long time ago. It's kind of like what we were saying about put a quarter in, let's see what happens. Um, it's not like your brain is going through the steps of this logic, this logic, this logic, this logic. It's like your brain just goes, oh, that's interesting. And looks at all the different directions. It comes up with an insight, which is very different. Right. But at that level of reason, it's almost addictive 
to continue to have those insights, to continue to think the insights are the point, right? As opposed to the insights bringing you closer and closer to the reality of what is, right? Which is ultimately you know, love and acceptance and, and, and reason and all that other stuff, which is why this, the level of love in his, in his model comes after reason. It doesn't come before reason because at that point that's egotistical love, right? It's, he's talking about the pure experience of love, which then trans, uh, transfers into joy very shortly after, right? So it, it's, it's, again, it's just recognizing that you can be clever about this. It's like, uh, have you ever seen the movie Harvey? I don't think so. Oh my God, it's a great movie. It's from, uh, I think it was the 40s or the 50s. It's with Jimmy Stewart from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's about a guy named uh, Mr. Dowd um, and his puka. And a puka is an eight foot invisible rabbit, just a mythical being that he is absolutely sure is there. The entire movie is about Mr. Dowd and his relationship with Harvey, this invisible rabbit. And everybody in his life is judging him, despite the fact that he was completely miserable and an alcoholic before meeting this rabbit. They just keep judging him as being crazy. And at one point in the movie, he's talking to the, the, the nurse at the psych ward that they're trying to, to, to put him in. And she's like, she's talking to him about why he is the way he is. And he says, well, you know, it dawned on me one day that you can be oh so clever or oh so pleasant. I prefer pleasant. And it's a beautiful line, of course, delivered perfectly by Jimmy Stewart, right? But the entire movie is about, it's not about your cleverness. It's not about all of your certainty. It's about the quality of your life. It's about the quality of your relationships and, and, and what you bring into those relationships. Being clever is never going to be happy. It's never going to be fulfilled. You might feel fulfilled when you're being clever, but what about the rest of the time when there's no problem to solve? It's a great movie. I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. It's, it's interesting, the idea of cleverness and if that is, you know, like a part of your identity that people almost expect out of you in a way. And it's like, that guy you mentioned, I think a few episodes ago that you were talking to, and he always has like these one-liners ready to go. And you're like, Hey man, like you don't have to, you don't have to keep doing this. And he almost like, you know, broke down and couldn't even handle that because he's become so used to existing in that way. And I see that sometimes with, you know, celebrities or even like people who are considered funny people. I see that a lot in that they, it's almost like a lot of times, you know, they are funny just naturally, but like people expect some like witty responses to everything. And I don't know, you know, how they feel internally necessarily, but I can imagine, cause I can kind of put myself in their shoes of, of needing that sort of expectation or, you know, meeting and living up to these expectations of this idea of themselves. And I can imagine that it's, you know, pretty, pretty draining in a way. And, and I think that's part of the reason why for myself, like I try to be very open with things and authentic and, you know, reassure people. I got someone comment on one of my videos recently, like, man, you're always so positive. Like, I'd love to get to that, you know, point in my life as well. Like, can you teach me how to get there? And I just responded laughing, like, oh man, I am not always positive. You know, I do realize that, you know, getting myself out of the way can help in, you know, 
easing those feelings of, you know, lack or any feeling of, I don't know, just any sort of negative type of feeling usually comes back to my identity, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's interesting when people have an idea of other people. And I see that a lot out there of just, it's, it's almost like, and people do talk about it sometimes the idea of, you know, playing this character. That's kind of like a lot of what Jim Carrey talks about is like, he was playing this character of Jim Carrey where everyone always expected him to be kind of life of the party, always have a witty response. And he went through a state of depression when he got tired of, of playing that character. And he, in a few interviews refers to depressed as, as this idea of deep rest from playing this character that they've been playing their entire lives. So when you get caught up in, in thinking that you are equal to the idea of yourself that everyone else has painted, it, you know, turns into a prison and all of a sudden you have to remember how to act. And you're like, how do these people perceive me? They perceive me, you know, this way and this way. Okay. I have to act this way and this way, instead of just, you know, allowing that sort of universal awareness that you are deep down to exist here and now and sort of flow with things, you're almost building up this internal friction and resistance to what is by trying to hold on to this idea of yourself and validate this idea of yourself for everyone else. And I think in that non-duality subreddit, you kind of talked about how people are, are building it up to be this concept and how, you know, the person came at you for using terms like God and whatever. And it's almost like people who get caught up in that have to remember how to be. And they're like, oh, this is a non-duality subreddit. That means I can't do X, Y, Z. That means I need to do X, Y, Z. And it's like, they have to remember. And it's the same thing with any sort of conceptual idea or even this idea of yourself. It's like, you have to remember how to act. And anytime you're doing that, will build up this friction and resistance to what is inevitably, there's no way to like kind of do both. It's like, it, it's, they're mutually exclusive. And anytime you're clinging to an idea or feeling like you have to remember how to act. And when it comes to non-duality, like, yeah, there are things you can and can't do. And it's like having a concept about what non-duality is, is the opposite of non-duality or it's, it's exactly what it, isn't, you know, is holding on to concepts and ideas. So anytime you get caught up in that, so it's not something you have to do. It's something you have to like, remember that there is nothing to do almost in that way, you know? Yeah. And that's what makes people uncomfortable, right? Because it requires them to let go of their opinions and their preferences to some degree. And, and again, atrocious stories immediately come to the surface. Like, so somebody was writing in this subreddit that, um, you know, any, any person who's not deluded would see that everything's not one, because if everything was one, then murder and theft would be okay. What? Like, and that was my whole reaction. It's like, I'm not sure you're getting this, that your opinion of murder and theft doesn't change the reality of their existence, right? Because the fact is, is that everything is permitted. There's no universal police force saying you can't do this or do that. If you can do it, it's permitted. But unfortunately, there's still a consequence. There's ripples. No matter what you do, it's going to have some kind of impact. It's going to come back to you. If you want to steal from somebody, 
It's not that that's against the rules of existence, but somebody else who you still is stolen from might take issue with it and come and come and deal with you as a result. So there's choice, right? There's consequence, sure, but there's no universal set of rules like this is good and this is bad, right? That's not it because there isn't a single thing within unity that's not happening to itself, right? Like if you're stealing from somebody, you're stealing from yourself. This is what I was trying to say to the person. It's like the 10 commandments make sense. They are common sense if you recognize you're everyone, if you recognize that we're all one. But if you're following the 10 commandments to try and learn how to treat other people, you're never going to recognize unity because you're still perceiving other people because you're still perceiving your preferences and your judgments. So it just doesn't work. I mean, non-duality doesn't have an opinion on what should be. Non-duality is just the, the recognition of what is, right? And us as a part of it. It's not like, yeah, I've experienced what is and this is what needs to change. That's not how that works. That's that ego thing again. But again, it's if I'm not sitting at a point where I'm saying, this is okay, this is not okay. What the hell am I here for? It's like, well, you're here to serve your purpose. You're here to actually just you know be part of the whole and continue to move around and, and do what you're doing which may include judging people may which may not but that's arbitrary that's based on your experience and what you'd like to experience and, and what you've learned to do habitually or otherwise it has nothing to do with some universal golden rule this is okay and this not and this is not that doesn't exist well it's always funny having that conversation with people and it's like you know no good or bad they're like oh all right so i'm just gonna murder your family you know, no good or bad. It's like, you, do you want to do that? Like, why is that? You know, you have a lot of opportunity to take any sort of action you want and that's what you're going to settle on. It seems, seems pretty shallow for, you know, the infinite opportunities in this experience. Like that's, that's really what you want to do. And they're like, well, no, but like, that's not the point. You said there's no good or bad. So like I could do it. And it's like, yeah, you could. And I would be extremely hurt. Uh, you would go to jail for the rest of your life. Your family would probably have, you know, repercussions in some sort of way. You'd, your face would be plastered all over the news. You'd be hated by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Like just because you can, doesn't mean you should. And just because you can, doesn't mean it's the best option out of the things that are capable for you to, do in this life. And it's concerning that you would even suggest that in that way. It makes me kind of question where your head's at right now. And so it's it's interesting because people always go to murder and, and killing in that way. And, and it's like, okay, well, what if, you know, like every rule needs a second and third rule? It's like, what if someone's trying to kill you? It's like, so people will ask like, you know, what about morality? Like we need morality. And what about, you know, religion provides morality and, and rules. And it's like, well, morality is also all made up because the idea of don't kill, you know, if someone's trying to kill you, are you still just going to stand there with your hands behind your back and be like, there you go, stab me in the chest. It's like, no, you're probably going to try and defend yourself. And that's why, you know, we made a secondary rule where if you kill someone in self-defense, it's not murder. So it's like, don't kill unless someone's trying to kill you. It's like every rule needs that second and third rule. So morality is another thing that's just completely made up. And it's like, do you really, is that why 
you're not killing someone because it's in the 10 commandments and it's rule. And the other part of that is like, we can make something illegal because we as a society don't want it to happen. You know, we, we have been able to see the repercussions of those sorts of actions. And we're like, okay, you do this, you're going to go to jail. There is no good or bad involved in that. It's just illegal. It's just like more of a factual thing. Like you do this and maybe there is a gray area, you go to court and then, you know, you see a jury, et cetera, et cetera. If you're deemed guilty, you go to jail. There's no like good or bad in that. It's, it's like legal or illegal in that sort of sense. So like the illegality aspect doesn't involve good or bad. It doesn't need to. And then, you know, people will be like, well, we made it illegal because it's bad. And it's like, that's just you layering on your, you know, individual perceptions of it. But yeah, there is no objective right and wrong, good or bad. It's, it's all made up based on, you know, how we deem society to best function in, you know, the eyes of society, which, you know, is changing as we see as well. But, you know, every country has different rules also. So it's like, even that in itself just shows that there, and every religion too, it's like some religions, you can't eat certain foods. Some religions, you have to, you know, drink wine because they think it's the blood of some dude, you know, it's like everything has different rules and everyone has a different God too. So it's like, you know, there is no consensus on any of that. So it's clear that none of it's objective. Yeah. But it makes you wonder, I was just thinking that our overcommitment to our idea of ourself actually necessitates morality because as long as we have an idea of ourselves, it's in duality, which means it's either good or bad. So we have to judge the rest of the world based on how we judge ourselves. So we need some structure of good and bad so we can know where we're supposed to stay within our idea of ourselves. So it's interesting when you question morality and somebody's like, oh, well, what's to stop me from going out and murdering somebody? It's like, have you never experienced empathy? Just saying, and if not, that's probably because you're overcommitted to your identity, right? Because identity and morality make sense. They're both conceptual fictions. They go hand in hand, whereas presence and empathy go hand in hand, right? So the more you're in your identity, the less present you are, the less empathy you can feel. Now you need a rule telling you not to do this and not to do that because you're not aware of the damage that you're causing, right? You don't have the wherewithal to be clear enough to see that you're making an impact. And so we have to kind of give you, you know, um, guides to tell you where to go, right? Or you give yourself those guides because you lack faith in your ability to be in the present and move accordingly, right? So it's like, no, no, I need a structure to tell me what, what a good person is. It's like, but as long as you're relying on it, you're not one because you're not free. You're not even a person, you're an idea and you're trying to live within a script. How can you experience life like that? You can't, but you can experience a fictional life where you have to settle for being right compared to your assumptions of others. Yeah, that, that's actually a very good question. Are you a good person if you need to rely on rules to be a good person? It's like, oh, all right, that's, that's actually a pretty good philosophical question. Like if you actually need rules, are you just a good rule follower or are you a good person? And it brings about that question. So yeah, it's, it does come back to that feeling of empathy, but it is difficult to get to. And I think there's almost two 
sorts of definitions of empathy. It's like there's kind of the surface level dualistic idea of empathy where you're like, oh, you can put yourself in their shoes and kind of like, yeah, like I, I kind of get like, I feel bad for them. You kind of feel some pity and, and whatnot. But I, I think true empathy is being able to see that you are them. Like if you traded Adam for Adam experience for experience with, with them, you would act exactly as they do. You would do the same exact thing. There's nothing changing that there's no, you know, soul or whatever that, that is, you know, belongs to you in that way that that would separate you. Like you are an embodiment of all of those sorts of things and experiences and, and all of these things that a lot of them you didn't really have necessarily like at least this idea of yourself didn't necessarily have a choice in. So like that person didn't either to a degree in that way. And so if you traded with them, there would be no difference. And so seeing that there is no, nothing left to judge, you know, like judgment stems from duality and feeling like you are separate from everything because without that feeling, there's no ground left to stand on to apply judgment to someone else for the way they act or the things they do. It's like, it becomes very difficult to instill judgment on other people when you see that you are them and you would act exactly as they do. So as long as you feel separate and you feel like you would act differently, it's pretty easy to judge because you have something to stand on, but then it's also easy to judge yourself. And a lot of that stems from that. I think a lot of people who are very judgmental of others are judgmental of themselves. And I see that a lot when I talk about, you know, how, you know, people don't really think about other people very much. Like most of their life is spent thinking about themselves and their idea of themselves. So like for you to worry about what other people think of you is, is just, it doesn't really make much sense at the end of the day. And, and I'll have people comment like, oh, I worry a lot about what other people think of me, but I also think about other people a lot. Like it's kind of the same thing. So like being someone who is fairly busy and has a lot of my own stuff going on, like I don't really have time to think about other people. So it's interesting how a lot of the times the people who are so worried about other people judging them, and it's like, on top of that, I don't, you know, I don't give a shit what people think of me at the same time. So like the people who are super worried about other people judging them, it's funny how simultaneously they're kind of the ones having this opinion of people. And it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg, you being afraid of their judgments or you judging other people. And maybe if you worked on stop judging everyone all the time, you would realize that there aren't many people actually judging you, but because you are doing it, it's like reinforcing this idea that everyone else must be doing that as well. And, you know, you could say the same thing about me that I don't do it very much. So therefore I have this perception that no one's really doing it to me when in reality, you know, they might be more than I think, but do I give a shit? No. Are they judging a reflection of themselves? Yeah. So does it really matter? Not really. <laughs> and don't judge not lest ye be judged, right? Like that, that's, that's the whole thing. But as long as I have an idea about you or about myself, I have to judge. I have to. Like there's, there's no way out of it. But it's funny because I'm never judging other people, always judging myself. 
because anything I see in other people is based on what I see in myself or what I want to see in myself. And there's the duality, right? Like it's always comparison. If I have an idea of myself as being, you know, insecure, everybody else is more confident. And that's how I perceive them, right? And that's, that's the whole thing. So we're never actually interacting with other people. It's always just with our own shit. It's just that other people are, are the scenery that we use to justify you know, that, that little play that we're perpetuating in our head. And it's interesting. We were talking about this in the last, um, in the last live stream yesterday, we were talking about how it's like, we have to shed our, our, our old habits of judging or shed our old beliefs about ourselves. And I think that to some degree, there's a, there's a process of that where we start to wake up to the idea that we're not who we think we are. We really pound on that. Like it just keep you know, digging at it, the more we, we get lost in our crap and our suffering and our conflict, we go, oh, wait, I'm just getting caught up in that again. And so we start to do that. And up until a certain point, it feels like we are shedding old habits, that, that they're there and we're working against them. And then all of a sudden, somewhere along that process, that feeling stops. It's not like I'm fighting my past habits anymore. It's not like I'm fighting past behaviors it's like, I have to be aware of what I'm creating here and now. Like I'm creating my past here and now. I'm creating my idea here and now. It's not that it's habitual. It's not from the past. I'm doing it again, each and every moment, as soon as I bring up the idea of me, right? So it's just this weird transition point where all of a sudden it's like, you're trying to break a habit that's from the past. And then all of a sudden you realize you're trying to break the habit that is the past is no past right and that's it you just you stop trying to create your narrative in each and every moment and then as soon as you stop trying to create it you realize it's not there right whereas before it's like oh it's it's habit it's created for me i can't help myself you're still doing it you're still doing it you just told yourself another story and, and that's why for the longest time i kept reminding myself i don't know how i'm doing i don't know where this is all supposed to go at all, I have no intention outside of whatever it is I'm doing right now, right? And that has to be it, it has to be it because anything other than that, you've lost the point again, it's become about you, it's become about your idea of yourself. It's like I was saying to you before that as soon as we are stuck in our identity, we are also stuck in time because every narrative has a timeline. Yeah, it's crazy how, how we have to continue that idea like perpetually continue that sort of idea to keep it around and keep reminding ourselves of that idea. So it's like, even something like, you know, your strengths and weaknesses, like I have gotten to a point where I kind of hate the idea of people and I don't know, I hate a strong word, but of people, you know, asking what are your strengths and weaknesses, because it's so identity driven and it's so, hyper-focused on this idea of you to think that you have strengths and weaknesses. Like you are nothing more than what you are right now. So your strengths and weaknesses are all just based on experiences, relative experiences to everyone else to think that, you know, there is even an objective strength or weakness that you could possibly have. Like you can't even have that because any strength is relative to the norm. Any weakness is relative to the norm. So it's all rooted in, in comparison. There's no objective like, oh, I'm really good at this. It's like, you're really good at it relative to everyone else. Like imagine for a second, we live in a world where, you know, 
no one was good at baseball and you figured out how to throw a ball and hit a ball. All of a sudden you're an amazing baseball player. But if you stepped into major league baseball right now in this sort of reality, you'd be a horrendous baseball player because you could only hit, you know, a 40 mile per hour pitch and, you know, they're throwing it hundred miles per hour. So it's all relative. So even to think that you have strengths and weaknesses, it's like, how could you have all these strengths and weaknesses when you are just right now? Like you have to remember all of these past things and you're like, Hmm, this is something that I think. And a lot of times the craziest part is that you don't even know, like you're not even, there's not even like strengths and weaknesses aren't rooted in fact, they're just this part of the story that we keep telling your, telling ourselves. And that was, you know, the thing that kind of, allowed me to finally break through and like start posting content was that I had all these ideas that I have these weaknesses and they weren't rooted. In fact, it wasn't like someone came over and was like, I've analyzed Andrew, I've analyzed your entire life and these are your strengths and these are your weaknesses. You should focus on these. You should work on these and have a good day. It's like, no, it was all figments of my imagination based on this story I kept bringing with me from everything in my past into right now. But it was a story I was telling myself right now and it was rooted in the past and it wasn't based in fact. So having, you know, even the idea of having strengths and weaknesses is I think silly and and only kind of harmful to think even when you have, you know, strengths to, to have that, it's like, that's the same sort of mentality that your weaknesses are rooted in that idea of having both. It's like, you are just right now. You don't know what's going to happen. Let's find out. But we don't have to bring this story of ourselves and all of our strengths and weaknesses with us into every single moment, because that will kind of have some influence. If we have this idea of what we are and who we are and our strengths and weaknesses will have an impact on the situation at hand rather than you know, allowing for the infinite amount of possibilities to potentially occur here and now. And that's freedom. Yeah. Well, what's worse is that if you haven't had a lot of life experiences, if you haven't faced a lot of challenges, for example, to give yourself an idea of what your strength and weak, strengths and weaknesses are, then all of a sudden you, re, you resort to astrology, right? Which tells you what your strengths and weaknesses are. Now you have a, a, a lot of certainty to define yourself and validate all of your habits and, and, and whatnot. And don't worry if something's not in alignment with your current, with your, your perceived sign, then we will do a chart and we will find all of the nuance that goes into that just to fill out that story. So it's general enough that you feel it applies to you. Right. And that's, that's ultimately what it is, is why astrology is referred to as the earliest form of idolatry. Right? It's because you're looking outside of yourself for the truth. You're looking outside of yourself for God. And, and that is the problem. And this is why I'm not, I don't subscribe to astrology. And it's because I've had my chart read numerous times. I, I once, once upon a time, I believed, oh, yeah, no, I am my sign, so on and so forth and, and whatnot. And there's some stuff there. And it's just like going for a tarot reading. I mean, there's some generalities. There's, there's that ounce of truth for sure. Right. But then it all just kind of gets a wash of, of self-definition. It starts getting lost in the idea of your narrative and, and who you are and what your limitations are. And that then again, that you were you were born with a certain purpose and narrative and everything else. Like it's just so disempowering. Whereas, you know, to look at, at all of the signs of astrology and go, wow, what an interesting way of trying to um, 
describe the spectrum of what's possible within consciousness, of what's possible within our awareness. Totally different story, right? Which is why when you go to people who really are interested in astrology, they don't just look at, say, your sign. They will also look at numerous other things that are happening in the stars in conjunction with your sign to talk about more nuance, that there is, in fact, other things to consider. It's not just that, you know, you are this sign, therefore you're close to your parents. And that depends on a lot of other things. And, and the people who are in depth about astrology will at least try to compensate for that. But the problem is, is that they're still giving you a story. They're still giving you a narrative. And the fact is, is that as soon as you recognize you're not your identity, you are now all of the astrological signs. You're not just one, right? That was part and parcel with the ego that you grew up into and adopted. But you can, you can abandon it and open yourself up to all of the other strengths and weaknesses that lie within consciousness. It's just about what you're doing here and now, because here and now, you're the entirety of what is. You're not just a Cancer. You're not just a Libra. You're not just a Virgo, you know, ever. So just let that go and you'll experience what it is to be them all. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating just how much when you really, you know, dive into that sort of realm, how rooted in identity and ego it is and, and duality it is completely you know dualistic to think that you are this story and because you were born on a certain day of a certain year in a certain location when you know the earth was doing a certain thing that you know all these traits apply to you and it, it's like it's it's very interesting and I, I don't you know prescribe to any belief system anymore, but it's, it's also fascinating just how much sort of, I don't know if it's cognitive dissonance or, or what exactly, but when, you know, you come across a situation that doesn't really fit, you know, who you are and they'll be like, oh, well, yeah, you know, but, but these, look at these parts of it. And it's like, this is, and it's, it's crazy how I've, I've come across, I don't, I don't mean to say crazy, you know, it is, it is what it is, but, um, you know, people, a lot of times it's, it's females that I come across who will, you know, learn someone's sign and be like, Oh no, like they went on a date with them or something. And they'll be like, Oh, I can't date them. You know, they're a Libra and I'm a Aquarius. And, and we would, no, we would never, we would never get along. It's like, Oh my gosh, like that person could have been, you know, perfect for you, but because you have this idea of who they are before you even meet them and the idea of who you are all of a sudden because you think you have a perfect match or a soulmate based on the stars and astrology and everything that you're you're limiting and you're sort of putting on those blinders and you may be missing an opportunity to meet someone that is actually great for you and even that like I don't know it's crazy to think that someone could just you know not know what time they were born and maybe they were born at a different time and they tell them one time they're like oh you're this 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 you're totally that sign like that makes so much sense and then it's like that's not even what they are but they're they're like sort of fitting them into that narrative because of that idea and it, it goes along with um what is it when you're when your brain uh confirmational bias where you know, you, you have this idea of them and who they are. And because you know, their sign and all these sorts of traits about that sign, you, you only notice those sorts of things about them, but there's so many other things about them, but because you go into it with this idea 
of who they are. It's like, that's all you see. It's like when you have this idea of who you are as yourself, that's all you notice when in reality, there are all these other things happening and maybe you aren't, you know, necessarily doing all these things that you think you are, but because that's who you think you are, that's all you're noticing. So it goes, you know, in that way as well. Absolutely. And I'll say from my own experience, I've never, ever met somebody who was completely immersed in astrology who felt at peace. I just haven't. At peace in certain times, sure. But as soon as things started going sideways, as soon as they didn't feel like they were able to deal with reality or that, that they felt that things were going according to what they would prefer, they didn't. Um, immediately it was, oh, you know, the stars are working against me. I got to wait for such and such and, and, and this deacon and, and, and so on and so forth. And it's like, okay, you're disempowering yourself. Like you're, you're taking away all of your, your potential to just be here in the moment and deal with what's happening now, you know, because you're telling yourself a story. And it's just, it's, it goes back to that same thing of, it's comforting to have an idea of who I am. It's comforting in the same way as being suffocated, right? It's like it's warm and it's pleasant until you die. And, and then that's the thing about, you know, clinging on to, to fictional ideas of ourself is that it comforts us right into oblivion. We walk ourselves right into conflict and distortion and suffering as a result. And so we're so caught up in, in the initial benefit like i was saying about you know my life coaching business transcendence everybody's like well what's the point it's like to recognize which strategies you're invested in for the benefit that are actually causing the consequence right like that's all this is about this isn't about anything else except for where you're overcommitted and therefore blinding yourself to the conflict that you're creating as a result that's all this is about and astrology is no different you can take from astrology and learn from astrology. You can take from anything and learn from it. But if you identify with it, if you make it your narrative, you make it your story and you stop questioning it, it will be your prison. And that, that is the only real danger. I mean, somebody's like, oh, should we avoid this? Should we avoid this? No, go listen to channelers and go, you know, do your tarot, go and have your, your chart read, whatever. But just don't commit to it as truth. Look at it as the insight that it's going to provide you in the moment that you're in, right? But beware how much you're going to re resort back to that just to feel more secure or more certain, right? Like I have a friend, every time that she's going through something difficult in her life, she refers to her chart. It's like, well, how much energy and time are you doing? Are you spending doing that? Whereas if you weren't, you might have an insight that would help you solve your problem. Right? But we're, we're tying up all our energy trying to feel better. And that's what gets in our way. And so it's always the same thing. It's like, take it with a grain of salt, treat it lightly, you know, learn from it where you can, but let's focus on, on what's important, which is our experience now. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting just to, to hear about those sorts of experiences and just how rooted in that the people get and, and how much, you know, they, they almost like find that, soulless in it but it's kind of like meditation in a way that i found more recently that it became this thing that i felt like i had to do and this thing that was a requirement for me to take on the day and when i realized that i didn't need it and all of a sudden you know it freed up an extra you know 10 to 20 minutes of my morning to actually you know do things and actually take action as opposed to being tied to this narrative or this idea of who I was as someone who meditated 
or had a morning routine or something like that. It's like, I am none of those things. So it's the same way when it comes to astrology, thinking that you are, you know, this person, I am someone who's into astrology that is reinforcing that identity, that unstable identity that is the root of all that suffering and fear and worry and, you know, depression and all of that is reinforced by that idea and any sort of idea that you cling to that you see as the truth is, you know, reinforcing that. So yeah, it's like, you don't, if you didn't spend all that time, you know, going through the charts and trying to search all of these things to figure out what's going on, you would maybe be able to see things a little bit more clearly and actually face them head on, as opposed to relying on this crutch for your entire life to, you know, take on your problems. I, I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me or, or surprise me or make me laugh. How often we get confused between trying to live a godly narrative as opposed to just being godly, right? I think that's the funniest part about it is that the epic story you're looking for is what remains when you stop narrating the story, right? When you stop limiting the scope of what's possible, when you stop jotting down the story according to what you already know or what you're comfortable with or what you're afraid of, then the story can change. The story can become something that you've never imagined and that you've never run across because you're not trying to make it into something that you've run across previously because you're not afraid, right? And that, that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, I, I wanna live an epic life. It's like, stop trying just be where you are, right? And, and the experience you have will start to inform what you mean by epic. But we have an idea of epic, we have an idea of godly, we have an idea of divine, and that's what stops us from experiencing it. That's what stops us from actually being in the moment where everything we do is fluid and rewarding because it's an extension of ourselves without us getting in the way, right? And that, that's, that's very much the point. So we're almost at two hours here. Of course, you know, lots to talk about after a two-week break. Uh, I just wanted to mention a few things to everyone. We have a free live group Zoom happening this Wednesday, uh, February 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you'd like to join us, just go to the dualisticunity.com website, click on events in the menu, and you can register there. Registration is limited. There is limited seating. So do, do that as soon as you can. Um, after that event, we're actually going to be doing another live show shortly after that for our Patreon supporters. If you are a supporter on Patreon, of course, you have free access to that live show as well. Um, if you're not a supporter, it's only $5 a month. And of course, all, all of our support goes towards Beyond Transcendence, goes towards the NFTs and the DAO and whatever, it else, whatever else it is we're doing with Dualistic Unity. So your support is always appreciated. Um, likewise, if you are a Patreon member, we are also doing another group Zoom chat on the 16th of February. That one is going to be about an hour and a half to two hours long. We're just shooting the breeze. Um, there's no purpose or point to it. So if you have questions for us, that is the ideal place to ask them. Um, and that's about it for the announcements this time around. It's been a great episode. I, I've really enjoyed this. This has really just been about, I think, the process of realizing our narrative is more a prison than it is a, a benefit. And, and I think that that's very much going to be the title of this episode is, you know, freedom from our narrative, because that's, that's the step that our brain doesn't want to make. It doesn't understand how do I continue to be me if there's no me to have an idea about. It's like, well, you don't need a me to have an idea about in order to be you, 
you're always you, right? Like that's the whole point. Allow yourself to see what that's capable of without you putting an idea around it just to feel certain. Yeah, yeah. It's just like you don't have to cling to that idea as a sense of security. And I think people oftentimes think of it as, you know, sort of like a life preserver or a life vest when they don't realize that they know how to swim <laughs> and they're holding on to it, thinking that they need this thing and clinging to it. And they're so afraid of, of letting go. It's like, you've been able to swim the entire time. And, and that idea of yourself and your strengths and your weaknesses and the story you keep telling yourself is that life preserver that is, you know, you'll inevitably get tired and need to let go. And at that point, it might be too tired even to swim. But if, if you're just able to swim, you can, swim back to shore pretty easily and you don't need that life preserver anymore. So I think, you know, it, it all just starts with questioning. I think that's a great first step for a lot of people is just questioning the narrative they keep telling themselves every single day, because I know it well, you know, it, it's something that you tell yourself every day. It's not just something that comes up here and there. It's a constant thing that informs every decision you make, every action you take, and all of your strengths and weaknesses come along with that. And the truth is you don't have strengths and weaknesses. They're all relative. They're all in comparison to everyone else. So realizing that you don't actually have strengths and weaknesses can be an amazing first step in questioning them and allowing yourself to experience the infinite amount of potential that you have here and now when you let go of that story and just start to swim. <laughs> so true, because it's so much easier to swim when you're not weighing yourself down with false identities and concepts. Out of doubt. This has been a great episode. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We will, of course, see you next week. If you can join us on Wednesday, we will see you there. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. Bye, everyone.